dig a hole and slope. And if it got away from them and went over, it's gone. But um, what they do is dig a hole and slope one side in like a ramp. So you get the butt started in the hole and then you start setting it up. So when the thing actually comes up, you've got a vertical wall that it hits, you know, the, the vertical side of the hole. And they can hold it there till they backfill it, but it's still, when that size is, is just, it, it's astounding they could do it. It, it is. I was watching, um, a, it was a series about Egypt, ancient Egypt, trying right. to figure out how they built this, how they built the, the pyramids and the Sphinx and just mm-hmm. else. And they were they were looking, trying to figure out how they uprighted an obelisk. And it was similar to what you are talking about, that they excavated and built up the sand as, as it moved um, from, from flat against the ground up to a vertical point. As it moved up, they would build up the sand uh, on, the, um, you know, on, on the part that was being exposed. And on the other side, as you say, it was a, a solid wall, so that when it got to a particular angle, it just went kafunk right into the hole. And they already but had one side braced, and they had a flat surface on the other side, and that's the way it went in. Well, they did the same thing on Easter Island um, to do those, but it was the same principle, whatever they were doing it. Yeah, but it, it, so, uh, it... But they moved back then you know, two, three, four, five thousand years ago, how they moved, some of the weights they did. Uh, lifting heavy things and moving heavy things has always fascinated me for some reason, but it has. And uh, it's just kind of mind-boggling how they could do it. But they did. I think one of the biggest moving features of modern times has been the Cape Hatteras light. And I know you saw it some of that when they were doing it. The Cape Hatteras light. Don't tell me. I'm, I'm going to tell you. What about the Cape Hatteras light? Am I hanging my so head? They moved, it, they moved it inland two or three miles from the coast because the coast, it was eroding out from under it and they were going to have to move it or lose it. It's Cape Hatteras lighthouse. Well, that begs... My stupid question. May I ask it anyway? Go ahead. What good is a lighthouse two to three miles from the coast? <laughs> because, well, technically they're not using lights anymore like they used to, but it is a tremendous historical thing. This thing is, I don't remember the exact height, but it's something like 200 feet. I forgot how many thousand tons this thing weighs it's because it's made either from stone or brick, and it is a tremendous structure. Okay, so from its structural, architectural, and historical perspective, it, it, is, it was a move to preserve it, not a move... Yes, exactly. They weren't moving it to keep it operational because now it's just a historical thing with the satellite navigation and all. It's really not needed anymore like it was. But uh, even two or three miles from shore... A light extends, well, until the curvature of the earth blocks the light. 
So I think it probably goes out uh, 20 or 30 miles on a big light. When a ship That's is two or three. When a ship is expecting the lighthouse to be at the tip of a piece of land, and it's two to three miles inland. Well, I agree with you, but as I said, they weren't using the light anymore for navigation, so it was just a preserving a historical thing. Uh -huh. If you ever get a chance, I don't know, you may have read it, but there was a guy named James Google. Um, he was big into lighthouses, and he built the St. Simon Light on St. Simon's Island in Georgia around 1820 to 1840. Uh, I think he was from Pennsylvania, but uh, and I don't think that's the only light he built, but that was the one I was reading about, and I cannot remember the title of the book because it's been too long ago, but you really ought to read that sometime about... Um, how that, that light was constructed um, and the mechanism to rotate it and all that. It was a clockwork mechanism, a weighted clockwork me mechanism that rotated the light. And the oil tank, that, now this was a, a kerosene or, or coal oil light. And the tank was in the ground at the base of the tower and had to be wicked all the way to the top to supply the light. Oh, my word. I, haven't, I, got, I can't remember how many hundred gallons the tank was, but it was a brick tank that was built in place to supply oil for this thing. Um, but it was, it was really interesting to read about that, and um, I never did read any others about other lights he built, but uh, that was good. And that light apparently is still there for... You know, tourist purposes is not used anymore, obviously, but it was interesting to read anyway. A wick. Wow. And baby, that's a heck of a lamp, isn't it? That is one heck of a hurricane lamp. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good stuff. Wow. That is worth reading. I'll have to squirrel around and see what I can come up yeah, with. Yeah, well, I know it's James Gould is the author, and um, there were several books about him. Um, but this one is, is about the St. Simon Light, and I do not remember the title, so I feel sure you can find it. Yeah, there, are, there would not be very many. I don't remember the author either. We'll find them. We'll find them. <coughs> okay, well, Sherlock Holmes, I'll, yours. I do appreciate it. And I have my Basil Rathbone file. And if I can get more, if there's enough room on the CD, I'll toss some Tom Conway on there as well. Okay. Yeah, that would be fine. Well, I'm so glad you called in and let us know that you're upright and taking nourishment. Absolutely. I'm glad. Me too. I'll be ready. <laughs> I'll bet. <laughs> I really, really don't, probably wouldn't care about the alternative. No, no, we can leave that one for a while. So, yeah, and I will be ready. I hope so. <clears throat> but anyway, I'll get off here and let you get back at it. It seemed like you were having a slow night anyway. Yeah, well, if we were. Um, it, it was really interesting. We started with um, an interview with Major Bill Grine, who is with Toys for Tots. And it was, it was kind of neat. He spent almost an hour with us about the program, uh, Toys for Tots. And then after that, we got a bunch of phone calls, and then it kind of slowed down. So you got us back to life again, sir. Well, that's good. Okay. So we'll talk to you again. Okay, thanks, Harwood. Have a great night. Oh, great. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 714-545-2071. Now, I was just so sure you had 
evacuated the building on us. Where were you? No, you don't have to tell us. Oh, I can. I just ran down the other side of the house just for a moment and come back. I need. I wanted to charge my cell phone. See, I knew we had lost you. You know, you're just part of me. You just have an inclination when I'm with you. You just know. You're equally up and it's disturbed. Wow. It's true. That's heavy stuff. It's true. That's heavy. It's true. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Okay, so before we go to the Amos and Andy, that, which is a short. What that means, there's nothing that means I can't pull anything over on you. Wow. That's, well, not very often anyway. That's well, true. that's not really true. Yeah, you could. All right, well, I don't want to do that. Yeah, you have to try harder. I'm getting pretty good, though. I know you are. So you, you have to try harder. <laughs> So the Amos and Andy that you have to play in just a little bit is a 15-minute show. Christmas Eve of 1941. You asked for a war year one, and there's two of them for the war that I know of. Well, actually three, but two I can play right away. Well, the, um, they're, they're essentially the same, are they not? Um, they're, the annual, they're the annual show with show the Amos talking at the end, right. uh, explaining to Arbidella the meaning of... The Our Father, right. or the Lord's Prayer. Lord's Prayer. But there was a longer version. When they went to a half-hour show, there is a longer version right. where Andy plays Santa Claus. Right, he goes Christmas shopping with Arbidella. He goes Christmas shopping with Arbidella, mm-hmm. and she wants a doll, or thinks it's a beautiful doll. And, of course, her daddy can't afford to buy it, and Andy figured out a way to be a Santa Claus so he could buy the doll for Arbidella. And I, I think that is just such a sweet story. But the 15-minute show is not Andy at the um, at the. Nope, Andy just shows up to the supermarket department store. Yep, I lost department store from my brain. So. Right. So we'll play that in just a couple of minutes. You bet. Okay. So I I was giving you some information, or I was going to give you some information about rationing in Great Britain during the war, and um, it it was really scary because they started rationing before we did and they didn't finish until 1954. Wow. They they still had things that they were not able to get all the way through 1954. So we're looking 30, 15 years. I know. I know. Wow. Now, a couple of things that come into play is that about 50% of their food was coming in from the United States. I never knew that. I didn't know that either. Now, I'm banking on this guy telling me the truth, and it was a, it, it was not a scholarly paper by any means, but it certainly was a well-thought-out document that he put out for us uh, in terms of what was rationed and why and... Um, you know, some of the, the bits and pieces of information that we just never dealt with when when we talk about rationing in the United States. It, it just, it was the high life compared to what the folks over on the other side of the water were dealing with. Um, in clothing, all clothing was, had rationing, and it went into effect before ours did. Yeah. A man was allowed to buy a new suit every two years. I have some in February of 48, February, bundles for Britain, where we were sent clothes to Britain. Would like, you, 
we had we had drives. Oh, for Britain, okay. Yeah, we had drive, food, clothing drive that we called a bundle. I don't know if you were talking about Amos and Andy or. <laughs> <laughs> no, we had clothing drives in the United States called bundle for Britons. Bundles for Britain, yes. Yeah. And that that went on for several years. Mm-hmm. So men's clothing, a man was allowed to buy a new suit every two years. A new shirt, he could only buy one new shirt every 20 months. So that was just short of two years. Um, And trousers, same as what we were seeing, without cuffs, pleats, and they did not have zippers. They used buttons, I guess, but the metal from zippers was no longer available. Um, Socks. So just don't pop a button. Don't pop a button. If you had holes in your socks, forget about it. Underwear was stretched out. Um, Shoes were lined with patches of cardboard. You just could not get those kinds of things. Why do we call the term, when we patch holes in socks, um, darning socks? Why do we call them? Darning socks. Yeah, why do we call it that? It's D-A-R-N-I-N-G, darning. And it's, um, you take thread and it, it's actually darning thread so it's it's much ah, and okay. silkier and smoother than regular sewing thread mm-hmm. and you go back and forth back and forth back and forth back and forth and then you turn it 45 degrees and go and weave it in actually create a weave with the um, lattice work that you did back and forth and that's called darning socks and you you actually create a woven patch for the holes in your socks. You're so creative. Um, uh, you know, it, it probably says an awful lot about me that I spend a lot of time gathering <laughs> these little bits of information from various places, which means other things aren't getting done. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, so here are some of the scarce things that were either limited, barely available, or forget about it. Blankets, bottles, drinking glasses, pots and pans, cutlery, soap, newspaper, paper bags, bed sheets, towels, paper clips, needles, uh, carpets, combs, and how this got on the list is beyond me, golf balls. (laughs) Who would be upset about not getting golf balls during the war? Good grief. Okay, hairpins. Like bobby pins? Yeah. They were precious. And if you did not have bobby pins, you weren't going to get them because they were made out of metal. So people were using pipe cleaners in their hair. Wow. I mean, the things people wow. can do to creatively compensate for things that they're, they, they can't get. Right. Gasoline, heating oil, of course, and coal. Mm-hmm. Coal was extremely rare. Right. Um, So traffic was virtually nil because nobody could get anything to run the cars. Houses and office buildings were colder than usual. And they talk about going to places like the movies or plays, um, public, um, you know, presentations and concerts. People would be dressed in winter clothes because there was no heat on the inside of these buildings. You couldn't get baby carriages, baby bottles. They almost disappeared. Commercial children's toys were gone. Paper, forget about it. Envelopes, greeting cards, 
Fountain pens, chamber pots. Now, that's a word you haven't heard for a while. Do you know what a chamber pot is? Um, well, when you went to the Chamber Society music event, you bought, uh, a, you bought your tea to sip, and you need a, t- a chamber pot in order to uh, boil t- your tea at the concerts. So that's my guess. That's about as creative a guess as I've <laughs> ever heard. Are you suggesting to me that you do not know what a chamber pot is? I am just, you caught me red-handed, my dear. Okay, well, you're, you're thinking in teapot terms. Uh-huh. A chamber pot is a, a bowl with a handle that slides under a bed when it is frigid cold outside and you do not go to the outhouse yeah. to use the chamber pot. I remember seeing those uh, in the Midwest. I just never knew we called those. But yeah, your chambers, because we used to call sweeping quarters, sweeping area chambers. I'm going oh. to my chambers. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Well, that's, that is not for tea. <laughs> well, if it is, it has a unique taste. I should have stopped. <laughs> I was ahead. Okay, so you couldn't get fountain pens, chamber pots, wedding rings. You could not get a wedding ring. Kitchen utensils, cigarettes and tobacco and matches, of course, we knew were, were rare, if at all. Toothbrushes and razor blades. Wooden pencils with, you know, with lead in them, just regular standard pencils. They were not painted. Wow. Um, manufacturing of furniture was restricted. Nightly blackouts became, at, this is the way he wrote it, the nightly blackouts became even more tedious and even dangerous when flashlights and batteries became unavailable. Window glass, you could not, the window glass was not available, so people wound up using cardboard and anything else that they could find to patch up the holes that were left by the bombings. Even if the bombs didn't drop in your neighborhood, the vibrations were shattering windows. Iron railings and gates around parks disappeared because they were collecting metals. Railway station signs and road signs were gone. Um, Service, forget about it. Food was much harder to come by. Now, food, um, this was just an astounding collection of information for me. It said almost one half of all of the food consumed by the Britons had to be brought in by ship, mostly from America, and these supply and cargo ships were systematically sunk by the overwhelming number of German U-boats plying the Atlantic and lying in wait for the convoys. So severe rationing began in January 1940 and did not end in its entirety until 1954. What was virtually unavailable was meat, butter, cheese, eggs, sugar, sweets, fruit, fats, white bread, tea, coffee, and whiskey, which you could live without. Now that that begged, you know, what did these people eat? The most prevalent item was fish, including whale meat. That was a staple in the diet. There was also an ample supply of potatoes, carrots, parsnips, cabbage, and turnips. Mutton was available. Uh, it, it, do you know what mutton is? 
It's uh, lamb. It's some form of a lamb. It, it is lamb, and it's tough, old male sheep. So it's, it's a very basic, cheap um, meat. But that's, that's what they were eating. Offal, O-F-F-A-L. That's a new word for me. Animal offal. I don't know. It is the entrails and internal organs of animals. Oh. And occasionally you might be able to get some from your butcher. Wow. Um, substitute items in place of the real and genuine items trying to make things look right. Marmalade made out of carrots. Sausages made out of soy links. Hot pies made with potatoes, carrots, parsnips, and turnips with maybe some fish stock for flavoring. Um, fried crow. Crow, like crows. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Darlings, which are also birds. Yeah. Um, dried and ground up acorns were a common substitute for coffee. If anybody did manage to get their hands on coffee, the grounds were used over and over and over until absolutely nothing came out. Blackberry leaves were made were used for tea. Mashed potatoes were used for bread filling when making sandwiches. I mean, this, this is just, it's just extraordinary. I'm going to hop down to a couple of other places here. When a whole egg was found in the market, I mean, eggs were just not available. When a whole egg was found in the market, it was buyer beware because it was usually a rotten egg. Go figure. Um, let's see. An onion was a rare luxury because onions were imported. Um, father, George, Dalton. Okay. In the case of one proud father who had very luckily been given a Mars bar by an American soldier, he took it home, sliced it into small portions, displayed them attractively on a plate, and served them for dessert that evening. Wow. I mean, it, this, it is just astounding. Uh, I had no idea, Patricia. I know, I know. And I don't think 92% of the population here even had a handle on that. I had a little bit of an inkling because of the kinds of books that I enjoy reading periodically. Agatha Christie is one of them. And she was a prolific writer who was at her top or was really riding a crest during the war years, so her characters would frequently be dealing with things like no food, no coal, no, no meat. Um, one story I read, one book that I read, had a part in it, mm, not true, it was, it was um, a movie about war times, and the family got a package from family in America, and it had canned meats and uh, treats, sweet treats for the kids, and it, it was like a bounty. It, it was like a ship had delivered the entire contents of the hull to this family. It was just astounding. So those little hints gave me a suggestion of what they were dealing with, but, I mean, acorns ground up for coffee, that's over the top, you know? Yeah, absolutely. 
So um, there is more here. I will save it for another time. But I, I was really astounded when I came across that information today, and it, it just adds exclamation points to how fortunate we all are. Yes. No matter what's going on in our lives, how fortunate we are to be in a country like this. Yeah, absolutely. So what would you like to do? Should we play a show? Why don't we play the show? All right. The Christmas show. It's one that we talked about last week. We touched on this with uh, Donnie Pitchford when we were talking about the Christmas show for Lum and Abner. He mentioned that Amos and Andy also had an annual Christmas show, and this one is from the earlier shows, the 15-minute shows. Um, the, the central piece in all of the Christmas shows that were done over the years was Amos with his little girl, Arbadella, on Christmas Eve, and he was explaining to her, as the Lord's Prayer was being read on the radio, he was explaining to her, no, it wasn't being read on the radio. She wanted to know the meaning of the Lord's Prayer. And while Christmas carols were playing on the radio, her father went through, phrase by phrase, what the Lord's Prayer meant. And that was the annual Christmas show. The longer versions, which came in later years, Walden and I were just talking about that a little bit ago, instead of Andy showing up with Christmas presents at the beginning of the show, as he does here, the longer show has Andy window shopping with little Arbadella, and she's admiring a Christmas doll that she wanted, and Andy figured out a way to get her the doll, and it was just such a sweet story. But this is the shorter version. This is the annual Christmas show. Which year did you pull? Christmas Eve, 1941. Christmas Eve, 1941. So we are right, this is right after Pearl Harbor. Right. So this is a very poignant time for people, and um, this is the kind of show that they would have needed at that point in their lives. So this is the end of our show. Amos and Andy will be following us. Merry Christmas, everybody. We will continue Christmas next week. And thank you so much for being with us. You have a wonderful week and be safe. You bet, everybody. Walden. Good night, Patricia. Campbell Soup bring you Amos and Andy. Today, Amos and Andy received many Christmas greetings. 
Both boys are extremely happy and are looking forward to Christmas Day. As the scene opens now, we find Amos in the front room of his flat. Andy has just entered, carrying a few packages. A small lighted Christmas tree sits on a table in one corner. In the back room, Amos's baby boy is asleep in his bidding you all good night. And inviting you to stay tuned in for Lanny Ross, who follows immediately on this station. The following program is rebroadcast by the Armed Forces Radio Service to our fighting men overseas. Bristol Myers, makers of. Just make your mind up The piper must be Stand dream through the night It seemed to be right Just being with him Now you must wake up All dreams must end Take off The party's over It's all over My friend No Oh. 